Nice Work, podcast of the Super Nice Club, where, as you probably know by now, we are just trying to make the world 10% nicer. This is episode number 105 with Mark Russell, comic book creator. I'm going to say comic book giant. Mark, listening to this, is probably blushing a little, but the dude is incredible. Incredible storyteller. Uh, very, very, very powerful books that you should check out. Uh, books like his current, Traveling to Mars. Uh, we'll talk about these in the episode, so I'm not going to get into details here. But Traveling to Mars, Superman Space Age, The Flintstones. No, don't think of that Flintstones. It's so cool. It's actually, I give you a money back guarantee on that Flintstones. A Billionaire Island. If Elon Musk, if you're still listening to this, uh, you stalker, you need to read Billionaire Island. Uh, Second Coming. What else? Um, Snagglepuss. A bunch of books. He is an Eisner-nominated got to be an Eisner winner, right? If Mark Russell hasn't won an Eisner, there's something wrong. Mr. and Mrs. Eisner, whoever is, that needs to change that. Eisner's kind of like the Oscars or the Pulitzer for comics. And if you don't know comics, if you're not into comics, you never got into them, you think, you can't compare those to to Oscars. or Yeah, you can. Seriously. Uh, Comic creators, in my opinion, are the best storytellers and creators working right now out there. There are incredible comics and incredible graphic novels out there right at your local comic book store. And if you've never tried them, if you've never really gotten into that because you think it's kid stuff, oh, please, please just take a stop. Go into a comic book store and say, hey, I don't know, some dude on a podcast challenged me. This is my Super Nice Club challenge to you to go in and read a, a trade paperback or a graphic novel and just tell them what movies you like. And the comic book clerk will find stuff for you. Comic book clerks are incredible. They really are. They're, they're, they're 99 out of 100 are dedicated to storytelling. And you don't have to come in knowing comics. Just tell them what you like. They will hook you up. Your mind will be blown. Seriously, better than a movie. Great date night. Sit next to your other. Read comics. Seriously. I'm not even kidding. It's fantastic. So we have a conversation, we being me, with Mark Russell. We'll talk about what he's doing, uh, what he's writing, his current projects, his future projects. If you're a Mark Russell fan, you get a little insight there. His take on, on how writing and how stories and how storytellers can make a big difference in that making the 10% nicer, that little lift there. Uh, we talk about the refugee problem in the USA. Yeah, did you know we have a refugee problem? Yeah, we do. We talk about uh, $20 pancakes. Yep. Uh, we talk about just the industry in general, and we talk about storytelling, and we talk about just stuff that we talk about. Like I said, there is a money-back guarantee in this podcast. I just really hope that you get excited about comics. That's the whole goal of this podcast. Get excited about comics because they're the best things going right now. Ouch, I just punched a toilet paper roll. Yeah, my podcast is in the bathroom in the by the pool. Anyway, that's how it is. Without further ado, Mark M.F. Russell. Mark, Mark Russell, welcome to Nice Work Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for, for joining me today. Oh, it's, uh, thanks for having me. Where are you at? Where are you located? What city? What town? What country? Portland, Oregon, USA. Portland, Oregon. I love Portland. I think we already caught up that I used to live there for a, a blip um, on 29th and Cooch, which is where you... Are near there now, or you used to be near there? No, I used to be near there. Now I'm out. Okay. Now I'm out in the suburbs, but I, I used to live right off of like uh, 
uh, 20, I lived for a while off of 22nd and uh, salmon. Uh-huh. And then uh, even longer than that, I'm like uh, 19th and um, uh, like right off Broadway. I loved that town then. I, I don't know it as well now. I still have an idealized version of Portland probably in my mind. Hey, I want to apologize to you and to listeners because I have a cold. I have a flu. So I probably I either I might sound more macho, like a little deeper voice than I usually do. I'm not sure. But I'm going to cough and wheeze a lot. I'm, I'm uh, just glad this is a uh, remote interview. Yeah, I was going to test for COVID, but it turns out that as of today, the WHO says that COVID's gone. There's no more pandemic. Really? Yeah. Oh. Today's the day. Put, it feels like we over. should have a celebration of some kind, like a, like a cake. Can I, I get a, so too. Like Italians. Get a COVID cake. Singing yeah. in the streets or something. Like yeah. going back to the first days, right? You know, singing from the balconies. No. Anyway, I threw out all my tests because COVID doesn't exist. So I don't have COVID. That's but. a plus. All right. So let's dive right in here, right into the deep end with some wonderful words of yours, uh, which go like this. Writing when done right is an exercise in empathy. I love that. First of all, I agree. But you know, tell, tell me more a little bit about your thoughts around that. Well, I think it's about putting yourself in the position of another person. And even when you're writing a despicable, villainous character, you have to at least understand where they're coming from. You have to understand why it is they're doing the things they're doing. Otherwise, you're not really doing your job as a writer. You're not can't really just inhabit the perspective of one person if you're going to write other characters convincingly. I completely agree. I think it also highlights uh, the potential of the writer, perhaps more than many other artists or as much as any other artist to, to move people, to create momentum and create movements that better the world. You know, I mean, I really do believe in that pretty trite uh, expression that the pen is mightier than the sword. Yeah. There's a saying that nobody's ever persuaded by an argument, but everybody's persuaded by a story. And I feel like that's where you ultimately succeed or fail as a writer is how you make somebody feel for somebody on the page. How you make them feel like they know that person or at least that they they sympathize with that person so really i think a successful writer is one that take that is not only able to like empathize with the characters are writing even the bad characters are writing but somehow is able to like communicate that to other people and spread at least the feeling that you've lived a moment and somebody through somebody else's eyeballs for for a while it's true and when writing a lot of us I'm a writer as well. If you're listening to this podcast much, you probably know that. We end up going down rabbit holes to get into these characters, especially if they're characters that are far removed from our lived experiences. You know, if it's somebody from a different time period, of a different gender, of a different ethnicity, we will really do our very, very best to occupy these people. And is it the same as saying that we've had that experience? No, but there is sort of a place that you get to in your mind where you can feel, I guess it's a lot like, would you, would you say it's similar to what a method actor would feel? Yeah, I don't know. I think method acting is is um, maybe a little limiting because it's, it's almost in a way the, the opposite of empathy. It's about trying to wait until you feel something before doing it, uh, which I think is limiting because oh, writing should be about like not waiting until you feel something. It's about trying to understand all the other feelings that exist outside yourself. That's a good point. Yeah, okay, so it's nothing like method acting. I, I take that back. Um, I got into your work originally through your Flintstones reboot. And folks, let's just get this out of the way real quick. You simply got to buy the Flintstones, Volumes 1 and 2 by Mark Russell. It's an incredible take. The original Flintstones was meant to be a pretty topical take on modern life. But what 
Mark and his team do is they update this and it's sharper and funnier and sadder and more powerful than I'm going to say any show you're watching right now on TV. And I'm so certain that you'll agree with that, that Super Nice Club is offering a 100% money back guarantee. If you buy these Flintstones and you're like, nah, this sucks or it's good, but it's not great. We'll buy them from you. Whatever you paid for them, we'll buy them from you. 100% money back guarantee. Uh, we're going to have to limit it though somehow. So like to 10 of those. So if there are 10 people out there that buy these and think they suck, I mean, that's an upside down world anyway. I don't think it could possibly happen. But go online, buy the Flintstones comics. You'll get it. Well, wow. it's been a few years since you wrote those. Do you still have, how proud are you of those? I'm very proud. I, I feel like um, the series I did before that, Prez, yeah. uh, I, was where I sort of learned how to write a comic book. And then Flintstones was really kind of the first comic book where I felt like, well, this is it. This is me saying what I've got to say to the world. And at the time, you know, I thought that it, this was going to be the last comic book they were ever going to let me write. I thought, well, I got to get it all out now because they're going to, like, pull out the cane, pull me off the stage after this uh, because the, the sales weren't great. They were getting all these sort of nasty reviews, uh, you know, sort of you ruined my childhood type of reviews. Uh, so I thought, well, this is probably it. This is the last time they're going to let me um, make a comic book. So I just tried to put everything I wanted to say about the world and about our, our my connections to it into that comic. That's ultimately what worked, I think. That's People responded to that. They responded to the fact that somebody wasn't just showing up trying to shit out a comic book because they were getting paid to. But that this, I think people responded to the idea that this is somebody actually trying to say what it the, the most important things they feel they have to say to the world. So the initial reviews were not so great, and then it ended up turning because the reviews ended up being outstanding. Yeah, no, by the end, the reviews were pretty uniformly good. But at the beginning, they were very mixed. And I think part of it was, you know, sort of like if you're expecting um, to eat a piece of chocolate and someone gives you a, a chicken wing instead, the chicken wing is going to taste disgusting for like the first three or four seconds until you realize, oh, this is a piece of chocolate. It's a chicken wing. Uh, and I think that's what kind of what happened with the Flintstones. It was so different than what people were expecting that it took them a few issues to adjust to, oh, well, this is its own thing. It's not trying to be what I expected. It's doing its own, own thing. So uh, after that, I think, you know, the people who got it, got it. And the people who didn't just sort of moved on to something else. So from the Flintstones, I read Second Coming which is another winner. Uh, it's sort of uh, Jesus comes back, but he's roommates with a superhero who's very Superman-y. And they have a lot to teach one another. Like, just think of this dynamic, folks. Like, Jesus finally comes back, and he's put in a room with a superhero. It's a pretty cool setup. Uh, and it gives Mark a lot of room to explore uh, preconceptions of uh, power, of faith, of responsibility to humanity. You also had, just related to the religion thing, you have a book, which I haven't read, God is Disappointed in You, which is a modern retelling of the Bible where you just, from what I've read online, you smash every, you make it really, really condensed, right? Uh, and then you did a follow-up book about non-canonical Christian and Jewish texts called Apocrypha Now, which is a great title. How did nobody think of that before? Were you the first one to Apocrypha Now? Well, I actually wasn't. I didn't come up with that. A friend of mine did. And, oh, um, your friend's a genius. Yeah, uh, I actually, like on Facebook, just said, uh, I've got this book. Here's what it's about. 
I don't have a title for it yet. If anyone suggests the title and I use it, you know, I'll, I'll acknowledge you in the, uh, in the acknowledgements. And, uh, the writer, uh, Mo Daviau came up with the, uh, the, the title. So I, I uh, give her a little shout out at the beginning of the book. Mo Daviau, I'm giving you a shout out right now. It is fantastic. It's so obvious and so great. Ah, I'm jealous that I didn't pick up on it for something else at some point. I did pick up a degree in religious studies many years ago. I'm not sure why. I think it had to do with my mixed like Catholic, atheist, Jewish household. And just I thought they were all batshit crazy. So what's your interest in religion rooted in that, that seems to whip through a lot of your work? Well, I was raised in a very fundamentalist household. So, it, you know, I think we, we tend to write about the things that scarred us, uh, particularly <laughs> it's, yeah, as children. We tend to hold on to those grudges the longest, I think. But, but more than that, it's just the idea that we come up with, that we all ne- seem to need these stories to make sense of our lives, which is not a bad thing. It's by no means, you know, a knock on religion as, as a whole. It's just then it places extra responsibility on us uh, in terms of which stories we choose to listen to, which stories we, we put value on. And that's kind of my, what I, what I want to talk about in religion is like, what is it that has value in these stories? Is it that it's 66 different authors struggling to figure out what God wants from them and coming up mm-hmm. with different answers, which to me is what's really profound about the Bible. Or is it that it's the, uh, you know, inerrant word of God who you know, apparently doesn't know the value of pi and doesn't know that how the, the, the sun operates. So I, I think that the problem is that both religious fundamentalists and hardcore atheists look at the Bible as though it was written to be a history textbook or as if it was written right. to be a science textbook, which it clearly was not. It was written by people who didn't even know about long pants. So they didn't, there was a lot they didn't know. So it's a lot of pressure to put on, you know, people... 4,000 years ago to expect them to know about physics and, uh, or, you know, history, but that's not really what the value of the Bible is. The value of the Bible is, is that it's a story. It's a collection of stories mm-hmm. and it's stories that are all trying to ask, well, what is it God wants? What is it that I should be doing on this planet? And that's, even if you don't like the answers, it's, it's kind of a profound question. I think it's why the Bible has such resonance with us now is that it does ask these very fundamental human questions. Yeah, it really does. And again, proving the point that writers have a little bit of clout and they can make a lot of, a lot of impact. Yeah. One of the more interesting things about the Bible to me is that, you know, there's this definitely this, this moment in the old Testament where it switches from, Oh, the King is great. The King, I know the King killed a lot of people, but he had no choice. Oh, the King was appointed by God. And, you know, he's this wonderful man. And, and, you know, there's that moment, where the 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 um the Bible is telling sort of the self-serving history of the kings of Israel and and Judea to um you know it's like oh the king can't do anything the king's incompetent the king's probably a smoker the king you know is like a lush and a sinner and uh, we would be so much better off without him I, I don't know why God doesn't just kill this king the dividing line between like the histories where it's all very pro king. And then right. the minor prophets, where it's all very anti-king, is that the uh, writers were being paid by the state in the histories uh, era. They're all on the payroll of King David and King Solomon. And so they were writing very favorable things about the king and how great he was and about how even the horrible things he did were good because he uh, was able to apologize to God for them or he had no choice. 
Uh, and then after that, the kings couldn't do anything right. But that the minor prophets were all after the uh, the kingdom divided in two, and there wasn't money to keep a bunch of writers on the the government payroll. Right. So they're all these disgruntled sort of striking, you know, writers like we like we have now. <laughs> and so, so be careful. It's paid Don't cross media. the right. The Bible yeah, is full of paid media. It is. It, ah. If the if the if the first eight or nine books of the Bible were uh, were on Twitter, they would have to have the little uh, state sponsored media badge. But yeah, it's just sort of like be careful what you do to writers because they're the ones who will shape how the world remembers you. This is true. So uh, there's a writer strike right now down here in Hollywood, and that's a whole other conversation. The writers have no leverage. They're going to lose hard and big, and it's going to reset a whole lot of things. But it's also a really fluid state and a fluid moment where I think that there are, there are opportunities to be had. Yeah, I'm not as pessimistic about the writer's chances. I think that they're going to notice when people start asking, well, where's my Stranger Things? Where's my, you know, I think the, the writers have probably a bit more leverage than that. I hope so. I hope it comes down to, you know, some streaming services have enough back catalog, others don't, and they start fighting among yeah. themselves, right? Like, well, I, think, I know you have a bunch of gold in your chest, but we don't, so... Yeah. I think that they're relying a lot on the uh, uh, the influx of like foreign titles to sort of like give them leverage over the writers, and they may be right, but uh, I think that only goes so far. People are only going to want to, you know, find the next Squid Game. I think the uh, the uh, the streaming services are overplaying their hand a little bit. I think the writers are probably what people once people will start stop missing the shows they they like, and then it'll become harder and harder not to give into the writers. What are you going to miss? What's the show that you're like, oh, shit, I hope that doesn't go away? <laughs> well, uh, they stopped production on the um, – uh, well, it's too late for them to screw up Succession. But, yeah, it's it's going to wreak havoc with my, um, with my HBO Max viewing schedule. Anyway, HBO. Yeah. What am I watching on HBO, though? Was it Barry? Or, um... Yeah, Barry's great, although this is the last season of Barry, too. This might be yeah. why they uh, you know, are thinking they can win the strike because so many of the landmark shows are – or why the, the the streaming services think they can win because so many of their landmark shows are are coming to an end. Oh, it was the uh, the new Game of Thrones series, Dance of Dragons. They they put a halt. Yeah, I haven't to that. seen it. I'm so far behind on all these different series. I just can't. I just can't. I just tend to end up watching. Maybe if I get to the third episode of something, I'm like, oh, I really liked that. Yeah. Um, and I I just like bookmark it to come back and finish it maybe someday. Yeah, part of the problem is that there's so much available now that something really has to grab you immediately. Whereas in the um, the old days, I don't want to romanticize them, but the old days. Oh, we of like, should come on. But <laughs> now, like good. network TV, I watched so much more crap in you know the days of network TV and and cable. But uh, you know the, the 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 bright side of that, the silver lining of the fact that almost everything on was garbage was that you would watch, you know, five or six episodes and give something a chance to grow on you because the options were so dismal. Now the options are so good that something's got to grab you right away or you're just on to something it's else. It's not going to. The last thing that grabbed me where I actually just tore through it was the bear. The bear was the last thing that I'm like, God, this is really damn good and I don't really care about restaurants. I just, I'm not a foodie like that, you know, but damn, this is good. The acting, the writing, the whole thing is kind of a perfect show to me. There are other people that, you know, I thought The Last of Us was terrible. And 99 out of 100 people think I'm crazy for that. Wow. Yeah. No, I love yeah. The Last of Us. Yeah. yeah. That's the good thing about streaming is like there's something for everyone. It doesn't really matter. Exactly. So one thing, a comic of yours that I haven't read, but when I read about it, I thought, God, this would be a great show. 
maybe expensive, um, is Traveling to Mars. It's out right now on a Blaze Comics. It's about a man who's he's dying, right? Dying yeah, on a one-way ticket to Mars, right? Terminal well, cancer. Okay. He's the first man to be sent to Mars in part because he has terminal cancer. So they don't have to worry about bringing him back. Right. It, they, it's like a, the most of the expense in sending a human being to Mars would be like creating uh, the logistics to bring them back to Earth, which if you don't have to do that, it suddenly becomes a lot more feasible. So they find a terminally ill guy who's going to go there and claim these, this, these natural resources, which are on the surface, under the surface of Mars, natural gas and whatnot. And then he can just die there and they'll pay his next of kin. And that is a very personal Mark Russell effort. Yeah, this is not like uh, something somebody hired me to write or it had some IP they wanted me to write. This is something that I, I completely created on my own. Not only did it, is it like my own property and my own sort of characters, but it's something that I, I wanted to take my time in telling and not try to cram everything into a five or six issue sort of artificially short story arc. But they're really letting me unpack it and tell the story in my own time and my own way and letting me do a, a really odd numbered run of 11 issues. I'm really, this has like been probably the best experience I've had as a writer in terms of just being able to tell a story in my own, my own way. Thank you, Ablaze Comics. It's always great when a publisher can allow that, that sort of a uh, rope to maybe hang yourself with, hopefully not. So you're on, yeah. ten, are you on eight, nine, 10, somewhere in there? Uh, well, uh, right now, uh, six is uh, coming out the next. Oh, okay. So five, five are out, six is coming out, but I've written all 11. It's, and it's done. So I'm going to have to wait like a year for the trade, aren't I? Probably. Ah, it sucks. I might just have to go out and buy the singles. I haven't bought single comics since maybe Saga. That was years ago. I don't buy a lot of floppies either, but what I'm enjoying in the, in the singles form is uh, Junkyard Joe. Who's, who's doing that? Uh, Jeff Johns. Okay. And I, I'm, I would like to credit the artist, but I forgot the artist's name, so shame on me. To me, the thing that sort of drew me to it is that it's obviously like supposed to be a, an off-brown GI robot comic. And he's a hero I've always kind of been fascinated with in the, uh, the, the DC universe. So to read sort of like an unauthorized GI robot story is kind of cool. But he does really well with it. It's very personal. Yeah, the artist on Junkyard Joe is Gary Frank. That's an image comic. That cover art is amazing. Can you guys see this? No, you can't see this. This is just an no. audio podcast. That sucks. So with something like traveling to Mars, like, is that something where are you getting, is everything you write at this point getting optioned? No. I mean, uh, some things are, some things are, but not everything by no means. In fact, most things aren't, but I'm hoping eventually. Explain to our listeners what what it means to have something optioned. Yeah. It's where they, uh, they sign an agreement to where they uh, can make a film or a TV show uh, based upon your, your comic if they choose to do so it by no means means that will actually happen in fact it probably means it won't it just means that you've been invited to the dance it doesn't mean you're anyone's going to dance with you because comics have have shown such great promise to become blockbuster films especially in the superhero <laughs> arena but also non-superhero stories a lot of titles get optioned but they're not uh because it's just like a just in case like they're grabbing up ip the studios and they can come back to it someday right what would you say? I think there's there, to to folks who think, oh boy, if you're a comic book artist and, and you're getting things optioned, you must be making a great living. Yeah, you don't make any money off the the optioning. It's only when it really gets made that you start making money. You know, in the the pay as a comic book 
writer slash artist isn't that great. It's okay. I mean, you, you have to work a lot. You have to work. I right. work probably about six, seven days a week just to like maintain a, a middle-class standard of living. There is, there are these moments and this is the way um, Greg Rucka once described it to me where it's just like, you're, you're just sort of like struggling, struggling, struggling as a writer. And then something gets made out of one of your, out of one of your stories, then you suddenly get ahead. It's like, oh, well, that bought me half a house, or oh, that paid off my credit card debt, and and then you can go back to struggling for a little while until like and something else gets made. And then you get ahead a little bit, but it's this sort of dance between your day to day fight for survival as a as a writer or artist, and then like these rare moments that kind of where you actually make your money because somebody deigned to turn your story into a more profitable medium. Although the screenwriter that turned that into a film probably got paid more than you ever did. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts because they generally are 90% just taking your words. You know, it's like they're getting paid really to like, to just create a greatest hits album out of your songs. Yeah. It's not, it's not fair. The, the friends of mine that are, that are working comic creators, it's just, it's just such a bad deal so often for a lot of you. I think it's wonderful with the rare ones like you who managed to somehow be able to carve out enough time to not only do the Marvel DC image, you know, big hero books, which you also do and do a great job on. You have Superman Space Age, which is coming out or already landed? Uh, Just landed yesterday. The book just landed yesterday. Oh, yesterday. Yeah. Oh, cool. Came out in a COVID-free world. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky it. So what's the take on Superman Space Age? What's what's the different... Like, does he fly backwards or have blonde hair? Or? No, it's it's set in, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, Crisis on Infinite Earths, yeah. where they got rid of all the other universes uh, other than just one. But this, this story takes place on one of the other universes, one of the universes that doesn't make it. So Superman knows, with, without any doubt, in 1965, that the entire, his entire universe is going to come to an end in 1985. So it's like, how do you be Superman knowing that? Ooh. What do you do when you know that it's all ultimately going to go away? Was that your concept? Yeah. Okay, sounds like a Mark Russell concept for sure. Allows you to plumb a little deeper. So that's what I was thinking is like you, you get to do these comics from time to time where you're taking a look at some, some, some bigger issues, some deeper issues. Not that that isn't, doesn't happen throughout the Marvel and DC universe anyway. There are a lot of really accomplished writers that weave some rich stories. You know, it's not just kaboom kapow. But you're humorous and and ultimately, like, just, to me anyway, incredibly cutting criticism and and insights into um, just how humans human. You know, how we tend to build societies and especially how contemporary culture commodifies everything. From the food we eat to the air we breathe to the gods we worship. And there's Mark Russell right there with his comics exposing this stuff in a really smart way. Have you always thought that's how I want to build my my career? I want to be able to tell these stories? You must be taking a risk is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, I feel like the risk for me is that um, if I were to try to start chasing the market or trying to start making something popular, no one would like it because that's not my flavor. That's not what, that's not what anyone reads my comics for. I, I feel like, in a way, the best thing I could possibly do, even from a purely commercial standpoint, is to write what I care about most in the world. Because I think that's, the only, that's what I respond to as a, uh, as a fan, as a reader, and as a consumer. It's like, well, 
is this something this person really cares about? Is this something they have something to say about? Or are they just trying to like, you know, bullshit for, you know, until they, for a while to keep my attention. And I think most people are aware when they're being sort of like bullshitted or they're just watching a procedural of some kind that that's never had any interest for me. Um, I think also, you know, with comics is a unique medium in that, as you've previously mentioned, the other visual mediums are generally much more lucrative film and TV. So as a result, it tends to constrain what you can get away with in those mediums because you have focus groups, you have executives looking over your shoulder, making sure you're not wasting their $20 million or whatever. Right. Whereas in comics, because the stakes are so much lower and because there's much less investment in making a comic than making a TV show or a movie, you can get away with telling stories you probably couldn't do in like film or TV. So I don't understand why people who are making comics aren't using that freedom to its full extent you know, why you aren't pushing the envelope with what you want to talk about in a comic book, because this is really the the main incentive for writing a comic book. Why the, the best thing about the medium is that you can take wild chances. Um, I was watching an incredible documentary called Turn It Around, the story of East Bay Punk, which is the story of East Bay Punk Rock. East Bay being East Bay, um, California, San Francisco yeah, Bay Area. like East Bay Ray. Uh, exactly. Uh, you know, a big part of the punk movement of various music and art scenes were zines. Um, I used to make them. I used to collect them. There used to be actually, there used to be a really incredible zine store in Portland. I don't know. If oh, there's there. a bunch. Yeah. Reading Frenzy was uh, really cool. That's the one that's been there the longest, right? Reading Frenzy? Yeah. It, it, it's not there anymore, but yeah, oh, okay. I loved Reading Frenzy. I, I was like a zine producer too. and I. That's what I wanted to talk about because I saw somewhere that you were a zine producer. You had your own. What was that? Zines are really cool, folks. If you're like not in an era where you're, you know what a zine is, but they're typically these hand-typed, hand-illustrated, drawn, written. We would spend hours at Kinko's, which is now FedEx Kinko's. I still, you know, um, hours with these copy machines doing whatever we could make them do. Yeah. Uh, and then printing out just 10 or 20 and then trying to find a record shop or a bookstore or whatever that would sell your take on your scene. And they were micro local and they were micro niche scene. What was yours all about? Well, mine was basically a vanity press. It was uh, just a collection of my own short stories and and cartoons and little essays and stuff. Uh, sometimes I'll let a friend sort of guest contribute an essay. Like I, I have a friend in L.A. who was like a really avid poker player. And so he would write little articles like about poker games he was in that had sort <laughs> of funny things happen or memorable things happen. And so it was really just sort of my own thoughts and cartoons, though. But it really was a good sort of boot camp for writing. I, would, I, I wouldn't want anyone to read those zines now just because I look back and the, the writing was so poor. But I had to get there before I could get to wherever this is. Oh, yeah. And, and zines are something that you can just do. There's no barrier to entry other than, right. you know, paper. One of the really great things about doing the zine is that you gave yourself deadlines, to produce them. So you were actually like forcing yourself to actually sit down and work, even though you didn't, it's really hard to be motivated when no one's paying you. And the zine was like one way to motivate yourself. It's like, well, I've got to get this done because I need to put the zine out by the end of the month. I was in a bookstore here in LA in um, Venice a few weeks ago, and I saw their magazine rack had a sizable zine section. And that was, I was cool. 
floored. I was like, still zines? And I was looking at them. These must be old. I feel like it's they're coming back a little bit. There's a new generation of younger folks who are who are going analog a little bit. And yeah, zines, like vinyl. Yeah, and the zines are part of that. It's have you seen? Is that happen? Must be happening. Portland must be the the center of it. I don't know. Maybe uh, I don't. I don't see a lot of zines, but occasionally you go into a place and they got like a little rack of zines, and I, I usually buy one when I see them just because uh, I want to encourage that sort of thing. The one that got me into zines was Duplex Planet. I don't know if you ever read that uh-huh. um, David Greenberger zine. He worked for a long time at like a uh, an old folks home, and the zine was basically just him interviewing old people who lived in this uh, old folks home about random stuff like what do you prefer uh meat or uh or ice cream or and then they would just come up with these long rambling answers about which one was better uh but it was great but it just made you know for the same reason i'm kind of in comics now it's like wow this can be about anything it can be about anything somebody listening to this start a zine just make a few copies send me one i'll i'll buy one copy from 20 bucks whatever you make i'll pay 20 bucks for to cover the cost of your printing like 10 of these things yeah Start a zine, like whatever you're doing, whatever. Maybe you work at UPS. I, I worked at UPS out on what was that? Savi Island? Is that what it's called? Or Whitby Island? Yeah, Savi Island. Savi's Island. Yeah, one winter was the coldest thing I've ever done. Oh my god, um, I got fired. Yeah. Anyway, it was a temp job. You're supposed to get fired from. Temp Everybody temp in Portland gets fired. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Is it time for us to like real quick? I don't think we can have a podcast for another couple months without a little bit talking about AI. Just like a little bit. I'm kind of exhausted on AI. You're probably a little exhausted on AI. Sure, I'm happy to down? talk about it, though. All right. So I was reading, you know Naomi Klein? Yeah. No logo? Okay. I was reading Naomi Klein take, uh, I think it was in the Times on AI the other day. It was her take. And she's talking about how AI, I guess, supporters, you might call it. I don't know. There's just some people who are more supportive than others, right? Or yeah, more there are people who skeptical. are really welcoming our robot overlords exactly. and other people who are a yeah. little more trepidatious. Or like, yeah, pump the brakes. Anyway, she's talking about how AI supporters are telling us that it can solve our biggest issues, right? That it can solve climate change, war, etc. And she reminds us, though, that, and folks, like, find the article, the Naomi Klein article, and pay attention to the fact that we don't need AI to solve, quote unquote, climate change, right? We've known what to do for 50 years. Right. That's as simple as The big consuming. problem is the political will. It's not Yeah. That. We just How need to we... consume less crap. And the political will, the C word, got Jimmy Carter booted from office, right? Yeah. Which, which was conservation. And you cut to that quite a bit in your writings that – we already know exactly how to fix a lot of these things, but our desire to have a livable planet, it's simply less strong than our desire to have the latest model, you know, whatever the fuck. Yeah, we always feel like some, though, we can kick that can down the road and it'll become someone else's problem at some point. Do you ever, I worked for six years in a nonprofit addressing these issues and most people who are in that space get burned out. And I know you're not in a nonprofit, but you're in this space. Do you ever tire of shouting the obvious, having it fall on deaf ears? Does it get you down? Um, you know, I, I try not to shout the obvious, but yeah, for some of the times I feel like it's maybe worrying to me that the things that people think are that I'm saying, if, if they if they think they're 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 edgy or controversial, it's it to me that is like I feel like the things that I'm trying to get people to do are the least controversial, the least sort of like wacky things I can imagine. Just sort of like, well, we've we've got to take care of each other, which is like what everybody learns in preschool, right? Right. And that's, you know, I don't understand at what point that, that became controversial. But the fact that it is is really, I think, what, what scares me the most. 
So you don't think the AI is going to help us take care of each other? Well, like, I think AI, it could. AI can't solve our empathy issues? Right. It's AI is not going to change who we are. Uh, and so the AI will just help us become, I think, more efficient assholes. The biggest fear I have with AI, or I, I guess I would say that all the fears I have of AI are kind of generalized into one main fear, which is that everything we're training AI on now, everything we're sort of giving it the deep learning on now is the disposability of human beings. Because we're only using AI to replace writers. We're only using AI to replace artists. We're only using AI to see how we can cut out the workforce. So the main thing AI is learning from humans is that, that humans are kind of like a nuisance. <laughs> that it, the, the more you can sort of cut humans out of the equation, the better it is. Yeah, it's not entirely wrong. I mean, just from a logical perspective. If you eliminate all the humans, the trees and the, the, the oceans and things repair awfully quickly. But maybe... There's a path toward there um, that isn't quite so... Uh, yeah, I would like what, to get to a point where it's not, you know, we're not in a knife fight with the rest of nature. Yeah. Where, where it's not an us or them situation because I don't want to stab nature, but at the same time, I don't I don't necessarily want to be stabbed either. No, COVID. Well, she, she put away her, her knives just, just today. Uh, COVID's over. In Not All Robots, another great work of yours, you it feels very AI-driven. But it came out a couple of years ago. I don't know if you were thinking about AI. You wrote it to address a different issue around toxic masculinity. But you tell the tale of a future humanity run by robots. And in it, the robots are kind of clearly the apex creation. They're smarter, they're faster, they're stronger than humans. Uh, they're also kind of funnier often. Like a lot of the best lines are by robots. I'm like, God damn, that yeah. sucks. You know, they, they take every job except for hairdressing <coughs> just because nobody wants a robot with their metallic hands whizzing around their head. Yeah. The hairdresser is the last human job. And this brings out very complicated relationship dy- dynamics that you explore. And I'm going to another a quote from the back of the book, uh, which is near the quote that I led the, the conversation with is the thing about writing futuristic dystopias is that whether you're writing about brutal police states, environmental collapse, or a nightmarish technocracy, you have to remind yourself that what you're writing about is probably the world as someone else is already experiencing it. And this is the, the nugget here. We only call it dystopia when it happens to us. We only call it dystopia when it happens to us. Wow, that's a great line. And not all robots. Guys, this is another great book. This is a, The reason why Mark is on this podcast is because pretty much everything I've read of his is fantastic. Now that that one's been out for what? Almost two years? Yeah. Uh, yeah, coming up. Is, is, it, is it getting any sort of AI bounce? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. It, it sold out for a while, and they, it took, there was a bit of time between when it sold out and when they were able to start reprinting more. So I haven't seen much of a, a bounce yet, but hopefully. Well, the 34 people that are listening to this, you know, 10% of them buy it, right? Right. There's a little bit of bounce. That's got to be at least That's a bounce. bucks, you know? I'll that'll take buy it. you. That'll buy you a quarter of a pancake. Yeah, I'll, I'll, in Portland, that'll probably buy a whole pancake. I was walking by a new restaurant that opened up uh, called Flapjacks. It's J A X because it's cool. Oh yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, Flapjacks. I fucking love pancakes. So they have the menu big in the window. Blueberry pancakes are 19 bucks. All how, pancakes how, for eight, 18 or 19. I don't know. You, I just you get like I, 20, 20 pancakes. I looked at the, the the way the place looked, and I just kind of thought, God, that could be just like for a pancake. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'll have to be fair to you, Flapjacks, if you're out there. I'm not trash-talking. I'm just like, I think it's okay to be shocked by a $20 pancake price. Yeah, I think that's fair. 
Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't, I understand not wanting to turn this into an anti flapjacks yeah. podcast, but, but yeah, that, that does, I mean, it's not them either. It's just, as no. you, you know, as you're saying, it's just sort of indicative of the world we live in now, this sort of inflation, artisanal sort of utopia we've created. Everything's and I, artisanal. And I will still, I will still take it. I will still take that over, you know, eating at like, like Elmer's or something. Yeah. And food should, I mean, we do still get food for, it is heavily subsidized and heavily discounted and heavily toxic, the food that we get in the USA. You know, a healthier, better food nation would cost more, meaning, you know, we would spend less on other things. Now, that's a whole other thing. It wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. And yet, my eyes still goggled at $19 flapjacks, which now I'm going to have to go try tomorrow. So that way, the next podcast, if they're incredible and I got like 30, I'll pick it up because that's, you know, what, 60 cents, 63 cents per flapjack, which is probably not a bad idea. Although, what's flour per flapjack? Three cents, probably? Yeah, it's it's got to be the cheapest thing in the world to make a pancake. <laughs> yeah. It's probably the, the cheapest food stuff that you can make at home on your own and also the easiest, which is why it's sort of surreal that somebody would pay, you know, charge you 19 bucks for one. And again, we'll leave this by just saying this is not an anti-flapjacks tirade. No, just, it's sort of like artisanal toast. Or it was something. just throwing it's it at artisanal toast. Um, before yeah. I forget, shout out to Stephen Prince. Uh, Stephen Prince is uh, a friend and the creator of Monster Matador, comic book graphic novel. He's the He brought back my very own autographed copy of Not All Robots by you, which is great. Monster Matador is just such an awesome, it's just basically Zorro meets Godzilla. It's that simple. Also, shout out to uh, my dear old friend, Shauna Gore, forever editor at Dark Horse Comics, uh, who you also know in Portland. Yep. She's now hey, at, Shana. at Lion Forge or what is it? Oni Press, whatever it's called. I, she's somewhere in comics yeah. kicking ass and she's fantastic. So they we have those two people in common. Adbusters magazine. Let's jump to that. Have you ever read it? Do you know it? Oh, yeah. I loved Adbusters. It's still that was around. Like, wow. I had no yeah. idea because I always it's associated that with the zines of the 90s. And yeah. Well, that's 2000s. what made me think of it. That's what made me yeah. think of it. it was our zine talk, Adbusters. So that's another great uh, Cali, I think. He's Canadian. Cali Lazen, uh, editor at Adbusters. Still pushing. Still wow. agitating on or against this particularly acute and viral form of consumptive capitalism that is, you know, eating the earth. And I'm not saying anti-capitalism, just the brand that we have is pretty gnarly. So adbusters and zines, and I always associate the people that are really agitating, I think it's because I'm on the West Coast, as Portland as kind of like the last bastion of sort of the resistance, right? Because it's not here in LA so much. It's certainly not in the Bay Area. The, the Bay Area, you could say, they're the ones that are creating so much of the, the, the shit right yeah. now, Silicon Valley. What's going on with Portland? I, it's it's kind of, uh, is it as messy as it looks from the outside? Um, not really. I think, okay. you know, that that's sort of overplayed. I mean, definitely if you go downtown, there's a, a huge homeless problem downtown. That's not, you cannot really deny that. Uh, and in a huge homeless problem in Portland generally. But I, I think people have to understand that, that that it's not the Portland homeless problem. This is the national homeless problem. Absolutely. Which comes to places like Portland and Seattle and San Francisco because we're some of the few cities that actually try to deal with it. Uh, most other cities, like Orlando or something, they'll just buy you a, 
a plane ticket. They'll just buy you a, a bus ticket to send you to someone else's city. They send or, all kinds of people to Portland. Or they'll just Montana. Yeah, yeah or Texas. they'll just arrest people, you know, and, and it's like you can either be in the, the prison system or you can leave, but you can't just be a homeless person in those cities. So a lot of the homeless problem is actually a refugee problem. People fleeing other parts of the United States where they simply cannot exist by virtue of their poverty or mental illness or uh, or addiction issues or some combination thereof. So they end up in Portland, Seattle, and San Francisco and L.A. because they're fleeing other parts of the country that just will not facilitate their existence. A refugee problem. That is an incredible way to, to frame that. And it's much more visual and much more accurate to think about. Like, yeah, there are whole parts. And it's really sad, right? Think about a refugee problem within the borders of the United States. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's not that thing. And it's not that the the people are a problem. It's that the 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 our uh, political setup is is uh, sort of creates the problem, or the fact that like the people who, are, who created the opioid addictions that are helping fuel the problem did so perfectly legally, and have made nothing but but profits from it, and are expected to contribute nothing to the solution. And the fact that cities and states always feel like it's not their problem if they could ship them off to somewhere else, and in fact see it as like a as a as a benefit because then they can dunk on Portland and California and in Seattle and say, look how awful these cities are run because we sent all of our we sent everyone who's too poor to actually afford a house or an apartment to those cities. So I feel like it's the system that's dysfunctional. It's the system that's the problem. And these are just people with various human needs, as we all have. Agreed. It's such a huge thing. And I, I feel, or maybe because I want to feel when I'm reading your works, that you're asking people, whether it's issues of homelessness or the other interwoven crises that we're all facing, um, you're asking people to take personal responsibility as well. And it's not just pointing at an issue and saying, oh, homelessness, I can check a box. If I vote for this candidate, then I've done my part, right? I show up every four years, check a box. I've done all that I can. When I read your work, I feel like you're making commentary to just sort of saying, hey, maybe, maybe, maybe you can do more. Maybe you can take and pay attention to the fact that the whole way our built society works right now creates these issues, right? They're endemic. Right. They're not just something you can throw money at. You can't just throw houses at it. You have to change uh, our priorities. And again, it comes to empathy, right? Right. And I think that the lack of empathy is what the res end result of that is institutional failure. The fail the institutions fail because we don't have enough empathy to make them, to force them to succeed. And we're okay with them failing as long as they're not failing us. And I feel like, yeah, there's there, the government is one institution and you should be doing what you can to make a government that is responsible to people's needs and, and the problems that are most likely to get us all killed. But it's not the only institution. There are institutions within your neighborhood. There are institutions within your family. I think the key is to make sure that they are always serving the people they're supposed to be serving. And that because if, if left alone, at some point, the process reverses itself and people begin to see themselves as the ones who exist in order to serve the institutions that they've come to just sort of uh, review. Yeah. Wow. It does reverse itself. And I think it's reversed itself when it comes to the things that we buy. It's like, it's almost the brands are selling our identity to us now. Nike, Apple, Tesla, you name it. Right. Like, you know, 
we don't buy them because we have necessarily brand affiliation. It's because we want to affiliate with the brand. Like there was a flip that happened maybe 10 or 20 years ago where this was just like, holy right. crap. We all uh, build our identities into these fictional properties, whether they're nations or gods or products, uh, brands. The danger is then once that god, empire, brand doesn't care about us and they never cared about us, uh, we will then begin to sacrifice ourselves. We will begin to cannibalize ourselves to keep the the brand God empire alive. Yeah. And it's funny that Portland is home to some of the biggest brand God empires that it's, it's always been an interesting place. Yeah. The whole West coast is, is yeah, it's because of these crazy hypocrisies, right? Is the people who weren't, I think the East coast, you know, was for, you know, people who are willing to go into established business and work really hard and think really linearly and succeed within these established sort of like uh, business empires. Whereas the West Coast was more, you know, go smoke some pot, you know, sort of like, you know, imagineer the future, and right. which we did successfully. And now that, that future is the new business empire. It's the new Google. It's, you know, Facebook, uh, right. you know, Microsoft. And, and so eventually if you uh, drop out, and, you know, if you, if you dream successfully enough, that will become the new nightmare, <laughs> which, you know, that's just the way it works. It's nothing, you know, it's nothing inherently wrong with that. But then you need to have enough space for the uh, there needs to be another a West Coast for the West Coast where it's like, well, OK, it's people who can't make it within this system, within this framework of serving these business empires are free to sort of drop out and smoke pot and, and dream of the next thing that will control humanity <laughs> i'm sorry bro manifest destiny ended at the west coast you know we yeah. tried to take it to japan you know we did yeah i think that's you know kind of the uh why big reason why the west coast is what it is is that people who couldn't hack it back east just moved a little further out west and then oh, yeah. when they got here it's like well there's nowhere else to go so we might as well make a go of it here might as well we're not we're not ignoring you hawaii we just yeah. we we're, we're trying not it's to just too far away there. Yeah, and, and Hawaii is all rich people now too. So it's not really you, you. You flop here, you go to Hawaii. If you make it here, you go to Hawaii. So what's next for Mark Russell? Uh, I know you have uh, Superman Space Age. Oh, you have the uh, Second Coming. You have the third yes. book in the Second Coming, uh, which is the Jesus comes back. I know and he's he will someday, right, folks? Like. It's been promised. So Mark is just talking about a thing. This is how he he comes back in comic yeah. book form. Yeah, he comes back in comic book form, uh, and he bunks with uh, sort of like a Superman light. And so the third book in that is coming out. Is that the final one? Uh, no, there will be more. Uh, but yeah, we're, we just started putting out the issues for the third volume, which is called Super, or is called uh, Second Coming Trinity. Uh, and the first uh, two issues are out now. Okay. And have you been getting much pushback on portraying Jesus in a comic book? No, not anymore. I did okay. the the weird thing was uh, I got a ton of pushback uh, when it was first announced. Uh, okay. Most almost all of the opposition, almost all the death threats and anger that this comic book got, it got before anyone had read a single page of it. Right. And then when it, it, it actually came out, then it's just sort of like, oh, people understood it wasn't what they feared it was. And that well, they feared that they feared that you were going to make Jesus black. Let's be real, right? They probably were. White. There's you probably a... white, and people are like, okay, whatever, it's all good. That's the main thing. As long as we keep Jesus white, we're not going to complain. He, he's not right? white, though. Not in our yeah. comic. He's, um, he's. Uh, I guess you'd probably best describe him as sort of um, Semitic. 
Okay, so he's tan. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's like a, well, I mean, he's like the Jesus that you that you typically see. Yeah, he's sort of like yeah. a uh, a slightly darker version of the Jesus you you're because that and then we had actually had a serious conversation about this too. Like how do we portray Jesus? Do we portray him more like historically like this sort of uh, you know, uh, Arab adjacent uh, person who lived in the Middle East or do we portray him more like what you see in American churches, which is this sort of which is basically this, you know, white you know, uh, varsity quarterback Jesus. Right. Uh, That's my you, favorite one. This, this sort of surfer yeah. dude, Jesus. Yeah, I like and that. So, and so we tried to come up with something between because we really did want to have the surfer dude Jesus because we wanted people who recognize that Jesus in their church to know that this is a story about that figure to like, right. to like use that sort of cultural equity of that image they have of Jesus sort of against the, uh, the assumptions they have about what it is he stands for uh but we also wanted to acknowledge that he you know was was born raised and died in um in you know the middle east so he has to sort of look so we i think we sort of threaded the needle a little bit there on his look and his ethnicity uh so with that what's your what's your next dream project that you're starting up it's coming out anything in the in the pipeline Yes, uh, I've got something. Uh, the contracts haven't been signed for it, but it's been approved. But I'm doing a um, a comic book about a uh, silent film comedian, uh, sort of like a Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin like character, and about the early days of Hollywood. Oh, cool! What's it, that? So that it's a historical piece, pretty much. You're just looking. It's at- a fictitious piece, but based in history, and actual historical people will show up in the story. But it's about this fictitious character known as silent ham and is that because you have a fascination with early hollywood or, or? yeah i have a fascination with it and also it's it's largely a, uh, a chance for me to sort of expound on my theories about comedy and, and, and about like how it well I, there's a lot of theories but it's 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 about how the, the relationship between personal pain and comedy which okay. sounds like the most trite sort of predictable thing you could possibly do but the theories are not, you know, like, oh, well, comedy is pain and you uh, – it's like one of the theories that I present is that comedy is actually like sort of the not – not, not about pain or danger so much. It's actually more about the illusion of safety, about how they watch this guy, they watch this Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton-esque figure on the, um, on the screen, and it's not that he uh, gets into all these death – defying scrapes not that they're laughing because they think he's going to really be hurt or killed right it's they're, they're laughing they're able to laugh because they assume it's going to be all right uh and they're really laughing at like uh the knowledge the knowledge that that he will somehow get out of this is what makes it funny versus horrifying but it's really because they're trying to reassure themselves that that they'll be okay that they that no matter what happens, no matter what confronts them, they'll, they'll ultimately get out of it like the guy on screen, and that's what the laughter is there to do is to sort of reassure them that this will somehow be all be okay. Wow! And you're going to tackle this in a comic book. See, folks, comics are a lot richer than some of you may have originally sort of thought. You got to check out the world of storytellers. The I, in my opinion, the richest. Most talented world of storytellers working right now today are in comics and graphic novels. Yeah, I think it's a a golden age for comics myself. I mean, there's so so many great creators out there. Yeah. We'll look forward to that one. And we wrap this with two quick, easy things. First one is super nice challenge. It's just a challenge that you throw out to listeners like, hey, what's something 
they can do to make their world a little bit nicer today or the world if they want to be a, a little more magnanimous? You know, I, I always like to um, let somebody in in traffic. Uh, like if somebody's trying to get out of the, the driveway of like on a busy street uh, of like a business, just stop and wave them in. That always makes my day so much better when someone does that for me. And so I try to always, every time I'm out driving, I try to do that for someone else. I do too, because I think it does. I think it's like a moment where you re- you give them a little bit of hope for humanity. Yeah, it's I like, really do. It, I think this is the, the biggest thing that sort of gives me hope. When someone who doesn't know you, doesn't care about you, doesn't really have any reason to do anything nice for you, does it anyway. To me, it's like, yeah. wow, this, it's like we maybe we'll, we'll make it. And if you want to get let in, if you're stuck in traffic and nobody lets you in, here's the, here's the secret hack to that. I, I hate that I said hack. Jesus. All right. Roll your window down. Roll. Okay. Put your window down. Let them see your face. Once people make human contact and you're no longer just a car, the odds of them letting you in skyrocket. They really do. I usually roll it down and then shake a little hang loose thing. And then people <laughs> will totally let me in. Challenge accepted. Let people in. I mean, I curse at people in traffic all the time, too. But I'm always trying to do better, 10% better. Yeah. I'm a Portland driver, so um, I always let people in and I never honk. Those are my, my two rules. Wouldn't make it in New York, right? No. no. Yeah, I, I, it's impossible to drive anywhere else. But in Portland, it's kind of nice. It is. Portland is a super nice city. I will give it that. And then lastly, if you have one, one question for me, any question. You get to be the host. What are you working on? Oh, I'm working on this podcast. Uh, I'm working on a script right now um, that I can't really say much about other than um, I have a partner who is a really top flight platinum level producer here in L.A. um, that has agreed to um, move to the next phase of shepherding the script along to into film form, which is both super exciting because I'm at the right table, which is what you want to be. You want to be with the right people. It's also a little intimidating because I have to now create a script that is as good as anything out there because this particular gentleman is at the point in his career where he's just really only working on scripts that would be nominated for, you know, best script um, for Oscars and things. Wow. So if, if this isn't in that category, uh, it's not going to get made. So the pressure is on. I've got like a, you know, a month to um, take the script that I wrote and rework it into something that is more one of his types of films. Uh, so I'm working on that. I'm also polishing another script that I love, um, written by a partner of mine and I'm, uh, working on actually something, uh, a, a comic collective, which is a way for comic creators to have a much more lucrative deal when it comes to partnering with studios. Uh, this is why well, I'm that's, talking. So that's yeah. the Lord's work. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm working on it. This is why I've been in touch with Shauna Gore. This is why I've been in touch with some people in the comic industry, because I really do strongly feel that, A, comic creators are just a great source of stories. Like you just said, you're talking about what is pain, what is comedy, that relationship. That's not a superhero story, but it is an important type of story to tell, one that makes you appreciate the work of comics and comedians and comedy and humor much, much more, and the people behind it. It's, it's not as easy to dismiss a comedian when you have a little bit of a deeper understanding about how their world kind of works. I'm generalizing, of course. I also think that that group of creators is also the most maligned financially. They get kicked around really heavily. Not always. Some people sign great contracts, but a lot of, a lot of y'all sign terrible contracts, um, don't realize the power that you have, 
you have Eisner's in your pocket and you still feel like, oh, I have to generate an entire comic in order to pitch this thing. Like you have the cred, you have the strength to much more quickly pitch some of your ideas that might not work for comics or that no publisher is ever going to touch because they're not sellable, but they're great shows or they're great films. Um, and you can get a much better cut and you can be a much more present creator in the process. So I'm working on that. And I'm a believer in that. Uh, If you're interested in it, I'll talk to you about it, you know, another time. That's what's going on with me right now. A lot of stuff. Oh, raising kids, you know. Yeah. Wow. You got a full plate. Yeah. Yeah. I I love it that way, though. Right. We got a lot. We got a lot of work to do, folks. That's what plates are for. Yeah. We have a lot of stories that need to be told, you know, at this time. We have a lot of crazy shit happening in the world. And I willfully, naively believe that storytellers can, can do some heavy lifting right now. Some heavy lifting to help all of us. So storytellers like Mark. So please support Mark Russell. Please get out there. Check out the Flintstones. Literally, it's just a couple clicks on Amazon the, in the show notes. Take a look at the show notes of this podcast or just type in Mark Russell Flintstones. You like, I'll bet you within four clicks, it could be added to your cart and it'll arrive by drone within hours. It's a wild, you can have whatever you want for next to nothing in 2023. If you don't like it, message me. I'll buy it from you. Anyway, Mark, thank you for being here. Thanks for your time. Thanks for putting up with my cold and my medication. Thank you, listeners. I hope you find Mark Russell to be as creative and inspiring and insightful as I do. Thank you. So there you have it, a super nice conversation with super nice Mark Russell. Have you ordered that Flintstones comic yet? Have I just flogged that hard enough? I hope so. I hope so. Or maybe not hard enough. Whichever one gets you to, to go out and check it out. Or just to check out what Mark is up to. Maybe he's Superman Space Age. That one is one that I didn't know about. I had to order it. Hasn't arrived yet. Um, and just comic books in general. If you have not experienced the joy of comic books and you actually take me up on my challenge from the intro, I'd like to know what you thought. I really would. I'd like to know if you get into something because I want to know if it's cool. And you can say, hey, I read this book. Have you read it? Uh, And if you recommend it to me, then I'll buy it. And then you and I will be that much closer. Seriously, sharing comics, sharing movies, sharing stories that we love. That's how we become friends. That's how we form community. We form community around stories. That's kind of like the center of it all. It's the center of uh, what I hope we can do together in our time together here at the Super Nice Club. (laughs) Anyway, that's it, everybody. I love you a bunch. And until the next episode, stay nice. So what? Big deal.